We're live. All right. Well, All Crossroads, right. welcome to the locker room, which we should probably explain what that means. Are you aware of that terminology, Lena? Locker room? You know, even in Lebanon, we know what a locker room no, is. No, but I'm, I'm saying why we call. <laughs> have you heard Rod talk about Crossroads no, specifically as the locker room? Well, why don't you no. uh, give it a shot, Libby, since... You yeah, know. so we like to refer to our church as the locker room church because you come in off of the playing field to get pumped up, to get redirected, to get refocused, and then sent out again onto the playing field. So Rod likes to be the coach, and we call this the locker room. Good. Showered up. <laughs> Cleansed <laughs> by Christ. Okay, but beyond that, we have other things that we like to say that are kind of monikers, and one of them has to do with our identity and purpose. And we say, uh, who are you and what are you doing here? And that's how we always start uh, this podcast when we have guests on. And so, Lena, tell us a little bit about who you are, how you came to know right. Christ, and how you're connected with Crossroads. Right. I'll try to keep it short uh, so we can focus on other more important aspects of this conversation. But I grew up in Lebanon, and I'm uh, now in from Green Bay, Wisconsin, is home. We moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin when I was a senior in high school and have made my home as an adult Chicago. And uh, I am a doctor. I practice, uh, well, I trained in pediatric emergency medicine, and I transitioned into telehealth about, what, six, seven, eight, seven years ago, somewhere around 2016, well before the COVID, you know, telehealth craze. Uh, because of the ministry, I run a ministry called Living with Power Ministries, and started that around 2010. So a lot of people know, like, how does it, why does a doctor have a ministry, and what do you do in the ministry? Two things. We start, started, really, my call was to teach the Bible and felt strongly that God had uh, called me to do that while I was training to be a pediatric ER doctor. And so in that season of life, there were a lot of things happening, and the Lord really sort of broke me in some areas that needed to be changed. And then I had already come to Christ as a child, grew up in a home focused on the gospel through my mother's influence. My father did, did come to Christ, but maybe midway through his life. And so, but, but really she was the influence in our home growing up at least. Um, I've had in many other ways, so it was very influential in my life, but my mom really, my faith voice is my mom's voice. And so um, in college, I sort of dedicated my life to, to God, you know, through, you know, as I, as I grew up, I sort of took increasing steps towards Christ. Uh, at every junction, you know, to the point where I start asking God, what do you want me to do with my life? Not so much what do I want to do with my life. And so that led me down a path to medicine. I thought I would be a missionary doctor, but by the time I reached my fellowship, it was clear I wasn't going to be a missionary doctor. Another conversation, but uh, which is an ironic conversation because now I do missions, but but I really didn't want to raise support. And I, I just was like, loathe that. And I, I ended up uh, in fellowship, you know, sort of putting some pieces of my life together and I ended up starting to teach a Sunday school class for women. We had Sunday school back in those days and really felt like this was where I came alive. And so mm -hmm. felt God calling me to do that. But also I was you now 16 years into my, you know, whatever years into my medical path. So I didn't feel like I had any freedom to leave that. So I thought, well, God can figure that out. And it started sort of this bivocational path in 2000 and moved to Chicago 2002, where I've been for the last 21 years. And so that morphed into Living with Power Ministries about 2010. And the goal was to talk about God's you know, conferences for women initially, write about God. I had a skill in writing. I knew I was good at writing and for, because I did well on them in my standardized tests. And so I ended up writing more and more to the point where once I started working at a big church in Chicago, 
I ended up um, be coming to the attention of moody publishers and started my, my writing path. And so now I'm several books into that path by God's grace. And I met Libby and Rod. Actually, I might, I don't remember if I met Rod back in Chicago, but I definitely met them uh, when I came to speak at a conference. That was my original meetup somewhere up at a camp near Grand Rapids for their woman. Mm -hmm. And it was after, I think it was past post the debacle of the, where I was in Chicago. There was a church debacle that I ended up writing more about. Yeah. But um, it was a, it was sort of one of those invitations that was meaningful because I, when I left that church, I felt like I would never be invited to another church again. Mm. So it was really essential for God to, to kind of protect that 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 in my heart because i for a season of life the church became like us versus them you know people who end up leaving a church situation even for very noble reasons get into that that stance of wow they hate me because they did they stop talking to you even if you leave for good reasons and so libby and her husband rod and and then later libby out of which really surprised me invited me to go to jordan and this is a huge part of my story because that trip really changed the direction of my life. I wasn't sure after I left that church, as I was serving in women's ministry, teaching women the Bible, what I would do after I left. And so I, I, did, I knew I loved medicine, but I didn't. I knew my calling was to teach the Bible. And so I was really in a in a cluster of trying to figure out what to do. And and they invited me to go. And I, of course, met uh, a lot of your people at the mm -hmm. time. There was a leadership group who had gone to do a vision trip in 2014, right when the Syrian refugee crisis was breaking. That's right. Don and, John and uh, Rosa Vanderkolk were on that trip. Hopefully they're listening. Mm -hmm. And they became my partners in what, and, in what is now uh, our global work in Lebanon. And so really a huge, huge roots um, in my own ministry life that were just watered by the work of, of your church. And so... Here we are now, 10 years yeah. later, Living with Power, my ministry is now, of course, Bible teaching, writing, discipleship, but also we have a huge global emphasis of helping refugees. Yeah, and that brings me to a phrase that we use at Crossroads here a lot, and that's called your street corner. And I kind of remember some of those conversations that you and I had, Lena and Jordan, and the way we define street corner here is that the place where God has called you or uniquely gifted you and positioned you in line with how he's wired you, how he's built you, what your passions are. That's your street corner. That's your corner of the kingdom of heaven to reach for him or to have his kingdom come. And so we talked about some of those unique things for you as you're wired in a unique way with a unique set of circumstances. So what would you say is your street corner? Well, I, I think m my biggest gifts in the church is my ability to flex uh, not flex my muscles, but flex, like <laughs> really too, I though. land, right? I land well, and that's a skill. I don't think most people do. I really go with the flow. And I think even very traumatic, I mean, I grew up in a civil war. We moved my senior year of high school, to, mm. you know, sort of moving into, and so I've been gravitated my whole life towards disasters. And so uh, the refugee crisis was a very important thing, you know, event for me to sort of start to see that because I think you can feel called to ministry and say, mm. well, everybody can teach the Bible. So what do you bring? To, and so my sense of urgency as, and so you also see mm. like what God's done. Like I ended up in the ER, I, I did pediatrics first. And then I knew that pediatrics wasn't my street corner. And so I, I, you know, you sort of start seeing a narrative like early on in the ministry, everybody wants to know like, well, what's your thing? You know, we started a nonprofit. People wanted to know what's your thing. I didn't know what my thing was. And now I look back and say, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a healer. I love to, to, to find points of pain 
and and the sense of urgency so disaster healing urgency i think that's my thing and so leaving the church when i did as hard as those years were by the way that led me to writing fractured faith which is about deconstruction also has been such a healing book because so many people are hurting in the church world because of church and and then shuffling around churches so a lot of people your church included may be receiving people who have been wounded by church so it's very hard to decipher people at church sometimes are they are they not talking to me because they, they hate me or are they not talking to me because they've been wounded and so mm -hmm. i gravitate towards pain and going to the middle east at that junction really sort of solidified sort of this melding of what i do as an er doctor and as a bible teacher i think even my approach to bible teaching tends to be very much on uh getting people stabilized you know like i'm an er doctor through and through urgency life saving yes. Uh, that is really my, you know, yeah. I want to find the most pain and try to get them to a place and then get them to someone who can then sit with them. And, you know, I'm not a family doctor. I'm an ER doctor. They do right. two completely different things. Yeah, well, that that's so encouraging to me because you're actually the second person in my life. Lots of people I know are called into that, into mm -hmm. the chaos to bring shalom to it, which is language we love using here at Crossroads. But my wife uh, is. I feel like I need a crossroads uh, encyclopedia here. There we go. It's I know. Every, yeah. every other sentence. The broad man, man. Where is he? He's, like, I, I feel hey, like I need him. I'm like, the new like, guy, too. The I've, had, I've had to learn like very that. quickly. I've had to learn very Good. quickly. Well, luckily, right, Shalom so to Chaos is a biblical uh, okay. um, picture, right? But my wife is an ER nurse. And um, okay. currently, we have two young toddlers at home, so she's not working right now, but she even got emotional. Uh, in bed the other night, just talking through, feeling like there's this longing in our heart to move back towards, uh, as you guys laugh about that conversation. <laughs> I mean, and the I mean, fact that I mentioned- I just wrote a book about Exactly, you just <laughs> wrote incredible. a book about uh, uh, wow. sexuality, which we'll isn't get that to. Another, isn't, isn't that another crossroads corner somewhere? This, that's good, man. This conversation was not a precursor to uh, marital things, we'll <laughs> right, say that. Right. Anyway, but, but yes, uh, you married one of us, ER I'm, nurse. Exactly, so is, she is, is heavy. she's drawn in, in a very unique way that is uh, that is an anointing from the Lord to the pain and the chaos. And so to hear you describe that in such similar terms is just a very encouraging thing for me um, to see that we, we all are ministers of reconciliation, of course, but to hear how God is redeeming even some of the painful aspects of your story to now be the platform in your street corner for ministry. So Yeah, and I love how... Um as you've talked, God's just uniquely gifted you and wired you for that and then directed you, like you said, what was my stick? Like what's what's unique about me? There's, there's a lot of Bible teachers. There's a lot of people who can expound God's word in a very effective way, but you are uniquely gifted, like you've mentioned, to have this sense of urgency and also the, the whole piece of the refugee ministry that you carry out that's unique to you as a bible teacher that you are from lebanon and that there's a huge crisis and that you're in medicine and you can apply all those things that god has given you for such a time as this it, well and it's another skill in that capacity too i think that that serves well in how i've been even trained not just wired like god puts certain things in you but then he spends yeah. 20 years training Amen. you is also i'm a very big picture visionary mm -hmm. like i don't get stuck in the trenches as much as so even like speaking of the middle east like it's so easy to get caught up with this war with this day of the war yeah. with, you know sort of like and i think in bible teaching like there are some people who just teach the bible for like here's a verse let's focus on this word and it's amazing and rich yeah. but i really think I'm, I, I'm skilled in being able to look, step back, look at this sort of 
movement of scripture, movement of God, and, and how it relates to where we're at now and, and, and the redemptive part of it, which I think is, is beautiful. So before we head into our conversation about Genesis 1 and 2 and specifically setting the foundation for this conversation around sexuality, I do want to go back to something that really piqued my interest, which is how did you stay in the game after you were hurt by the church? Mm-hmm. Well, honestly, a lot of it is your church people, specifically that core group of people was very, very instrumental in my life because like, well, every, I mean, I, I'm serious, like Libby, you know that what it was a season where I really didn't trust people who are Christians mm. um, because the, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's hard because I was that church person that like people at work knew my life was the church, like, right. So I'm single. I never married. And I'm fully committed. Like I started, you know, teaching the Bible in 2000. I moved to Chicago. Like this is my goal, my dreams, everything in my life. My my aspirations have to do not with medicine, but with the church and mm. Bible study and Bible teaching and women and discipleship. And so to the point where I actually led the women's ministry for three years um, while I was a, an attending physician at the hospital. And, and my movement in the hospital world was influenced by what I was doing in ministry. So, so everyone at work understood that. And my social people were from church. I, you know, I, I wasn't one that got caught up with the things of the world in that season, you know, in the sense that I was committed. So when I left that church, even though I knew I was not personally involved in any, you know, sort of debacle or, 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 you know, carnage, but I saw what was evidently something that should be there so so it wasn't like i needed to you know fix anything there like right. it was more and so but but when you leave with that capacity you sort of think well be, you know lord you're the one who led me out and you're gonna you know show everyone like you know because you, you again you go back to being visionary you sort of see things mm. even prophetically and it was clear the writing was on the wall but like the people that i thought would see didn't see and and even to the degree i thought maybe even on the inside like maybe i even thought that pastor would see who was involved in that story and and it felt for a season like no one could see except the handful who had left. And we were, you know, blackballed and and and, and not verbal. Like if you had asked people, no, we didn't block what but the movement of a church was like, okay, don't talk to them because they're divisive. And so there's there's this painful sort of season when things are clarifying. Yeah. And God, I think, uses that, by the way. I don't think all those seasons are necessarily bad in and of themselves. I think they're I had to now we look at those seasons that the six to seven years that passed after I left. I refer to now in a term that maybe people are familiar with deconstruction. We didn't have a term for that back then, right? And so at the time, I think it was just plain old, I was hurting. (laughs) And so, you know, all the things that happen when you're hurting, the ways of sin, it's not, I would say it's not ironic that I wrote this new book after the Fractured Faith book, because a lot of sin sort of, you know, habits of sin, things that numb the pain, make you feel better, sort of have a way of creeping back into your psyche during moments where you feel alone. Mm. I think the hardest part of church hurt to me in hindsight is that you, it's not just that, I mean, everybody knows, I mean, I'm an ER doctor. I know people can be jerks, right? I mean, people say things to me that you don't say to your dogs, right? But <laughs> but there's something very yep. spiritual that you feel God is against you when you feel like you're on the outside mm-hmm. and, and they're on the inside. And so to me, that was the hardest thing to reconcile is where is God in this pain? I understood they were idiots or whatever, like, you know, all the things that you tell yourself, not that they were, but you tell yourself that, but, or mean or whatever, but it was, why, why isn't God showing himself? Why isn't he vindicating me? Why? And so I had to wrestle with that, which I think was necessary because I think we don't really know God. We say we do. We think we do. We know about God. We can mm-hmm. describe him on a piece of paper, but the only way to know him is to 
is to admit that at some point, like, oh my goodness, I thought I knew him, but really I was just going to picture of God based on whatever the leader in that moment was. And I think for me, it ended up being the biggest gift of my life to deconstruct. Hmm. A lot of the legalism in my life needed to go. And that's probably the most important change that happened is that I um, feel like, even though I never would have identified as a legalist, I mean, you know, I went to a legalist college. I thought I knew what a legalist is, but you start seeing habits in your life that are legalistic, how yeah. you read your Bible, how you pray, how, what you expect God to do in return to what you've done. Hmm. It needed to go and are still, God continues to purge me of that. And so I'm grateful, but, but I also think how I survived it was the handful of relationships that would be like, like, I remember even our Jordan trip was so amazing, but then even after that, moving with John and Rosa into the work in Lebanon mm-hmm. and Rosa, I mean, anyone who knows her knows what a gift she has to, to make people feel loved. I think that's the other thing is learning. What does love really mean? I was in a background, my own growing up background and that church background that I left was very conditional. So I approached love with God is very conditionally like, you know, and, and I think meeting people who love you and especially when things are falling apart and broken is a gift. And so those were healthy relationships that ended up, you know, sort of being like, it's like a antibiotic ointment on wounds, you know, not the, not ultimately what heals you, but what helps, mm. you know, while God takes care of the broken pieces. So you mentioned that process of deconstruction, and then you said, I, I couldn't see where God was in this. So where was God now as hindsight is 2020? Mm. Where was God same, in that? Same where he always was. He never left. We, he doesn't leave. We leave. We walk away. Nothing. I mean, and, you know, it's ironic because I, uh, I ended up, um, I went to therapy, which was really good for me. Uh, it's funny because I never thought I needed therapy. And honestly, and I don't think, like I, like I was talking with, with a psychologist once. I did an interview, and she's a, psycho- she's a psychologist who was interviewing me. And she was saying, like, like there was, God was a healer well before psychologists and therapists were around, right? Amen. I mean, we know that. But for me, it was important to go. And I, th- I always tell people, like, yeah. learn from I paid a lot of money to go to therapy over the years and learn from my experience. I've written free, you know, books that are very affordable for you. You don't have to pay the same rate. So, so like, that's one advantage of, of reading someone who's been to therapy, but I needed it because I really lost my small group. I lost my network of people where I could be open with. And remember I was in an environment where I don't think I was given the, the freedom to be open on some things that, that I wanted to be open on for years. And so therapy was very helpful to me, but I remember the turning point to me in the process of deconstruction was one day coming, and I was, by the way, I was like, I, I've always been sort of a rule keeper. To, well, I'm, it's, it's sort of a two, like in a way, like people who know me would say, you're not a rule keeper, but really I, I am from the regard of like, I don't want to upset God. Like I want to do everything right so that God does what I want him to do. You know, like I'll read my Bible every day, even if I'm mad at God, do you know what I mean? And I'm too polite to say I'm mad at God until I write a book about it, <laughs> right? But like, so in that season, like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Like I was reading my Bible, my journaling went, fell off a little. I was speaking at conferences, but my heart wasn't, hmm. it was, there was a barrier between me and God. That's the best way I can explain it. Yeah. And, and so, and so I, I, I think the aha moment came one day, I came home from therapy and I had, you know, I live in Chicago, so I wasn't obviously in the same town as the people that I mentioned earlier, but I had my own couple of people here in Chicago who are still my team, you know, cause we had the ministry, we we're running the ministry. I was still writing about God. And, and so in my, in my team, like they could only go so far. People can only take you so far. Everyone has their own stuff. Like sometimes we're frustrated with people because they don't help us. They don't hear us. They don't, 
know what to do. But, and, and they, you're like, I was mad, like even with my mom and my sister and people who should know me, like why don't they like fix, yeah. You don't even know quite what to verbalize. And so going to therapy helped me sort of tease some of that out. But then even that relationship had a limit. And one day I remember coming home in the middle of this journey and thinking, why am I wasting my time and money? She doesn't even understand me. And I was so aggravated. I was like at the breaking point. And, and I remember looking, I was in the living room there and I remember seeing my Bible on a table and I, and I felt the spirit of God really say to me, like, open it, just read it. And I honestly, like, it's a miracle God doesn't strike us dead. Cause my first thought was, you've got to be kidding me. Like, seriously, like I've been reading this book my entire life. I'm well into my forties now. And I was like, what am I going to read that I haven't read before? And then I just out of in utter exhaustion and fatigue, I just opened my Bible and, and I look, I can't even find it now, but it, this is a new Bible. But at the time I opened it and it came uh, to Psalm 22. Hmm. And I remember just starting to read it. And, and I was joking because, you know, I grew up in the church that would be like, oh, don't just open your Bible anyway. I remember literally you had these pastors who would be like, because then you're going to Judas, you know, went and hung himself. Like right. that's a horrible strategy to read your Bible. But, but I just didn't have any energy to go through the Bible reading plan at that point. And so for me, it was Psalm 22 was the, the Psalm of David that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on as this deep gutter lament. And I was just ten verses into it and I was sobbing and, 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 and I remember sort of this awareness in that moment, not just that I was reading the Psalm that understood me, that expressed me, but now what I think, you know, you, you, the question really you were asking is like, where's God? And I, I saw in that moment clearly that this wasn't just about, this wasn't at all about me, but it was about me. But the deeper part was this was about Jesus. Mm. It's a prophetic psalm about Jesus. Amen. And it's like it's like there was such a sense of intimacy knowing that here's a savior who have been has been knew, understood where I am. And and I don't know, it's just something really shifted that day. It still took therapy, it still took work and and and, and the process of healing takes time and solitude with God and no quick fixes. I don't think relationship with God is you know, we want it to be like this. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, and I think for me though, that was the beginning of seeing light come through, you know, the darkness. And I just saw that the savior understood me and loved me and hadn't gone anywhere. And it changed me. And, and that's the amazing thing about the me. Bible, right? You just, it is a book, like you said, that you've read over and over again throughout your whole entire life. And then you open it one day and you read something that you've probably read 10 times before and the Holy Spirit just ignites it in your heart. And it's like, wow, all of a sudden, um, I see this in a new way. And God's using it to melt my heart, to change me, to transform me. We like to say around here, too, that the Word of God has always been efficacious. It's always yielded change, not just in creation, in Genesis, where he spoke and things came to life. That same Word that we get to open every day, there's something living about those pages. And it it brings about change in our hearts, just as his Word always has, always bringing forth new creation. So I love that testimony from you, Lena. And it's that, encouraging. That testimony too is not just a testimony of deconstruction, but about how God reconstructed truth uh, that you needed to see in a new way, which I love. You know, I had a professor in college always say, God is iconoclastic, that we we turn God into this icon and then he's constantly breaking out of these boxes yeah. that we place mm-hmm. him in uh, because our minds can't contain Obviously, his wonder, his splendor, his sovereignty is all, you know, and, and so we, we build these boxes and we, God allows us to deconstruct them to be reconstructed 
into, you know, slowly and slowly into who he actually is. That's so encouraging to yeah. me. Well, 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 a couple of things on that. I mean, just, I, I think one is like, everyone assumes when you hear the word deconstruction in 2023, that it's like a bad thing, right? Because everyone's like, oh, you know, they're now believing God knows what. But really, I always remind people, in fact, in that book, I wrote Fractured Faith, I sort of visualized it on a di diagram at the end of the book. But I don't think when you deconstruct, you always go towards disbelief. That's mm. what, that's the popular names totally. that we've seen. But really, the whole idea is what you're saying, really, deconstruction going to reconstruction or stronger belief. I think my faith in God is stronger now than it used to be. Like, I, I no longer think the word, you know, my tendency is always to assume the worst about every situation. And some of that is ER. Maybe your wife, I don't know if you mm, totally. can see that, no, but yeah. we're trained to sort of think, oh, what are the six bad things that could happen? Like, it's my job to think of every bad scenario. And you start to impose that on God. And so I no longer come to God with, oh, what, what's the worst thing that you know is he really not like me you know i come with the premise of his goodness which that has changed but the other thing i was to say and i think this is the hardest part i think of the deconstruction conversation in my opinion uh, with christians who have continued to be faithful to christ which is how do they reconcile church this to me has been this is the part that's the hardest which i have a lot of friends who went through the same church hurt and many many in chicago now many who strongly claim allegiance to Jesus and they do Bible study and on and on and they have zero interest in the local church and I think first I think that's tragic though I understand it I think integrating into a healthy church is immensely difficult after that and yet I think that's part of why our church in the U.S. is what it is and when I say church in the U.S., I mean big C church. Yeah, like yeah, Christianity yeah. in the U.S. is now suffering because I don't think that's possible to have a strong, big church with people scattered going, oh, I love God, but I hate his church, or I can't stand these people, which I think is understandable, but not okay. No, yeah, it is understandable, and it makes sense based right. off of the pain that they've experienced. But Jesus, <laughs> for God so loved the world, but for God so loved the church, you know, Jesus bled well, and died for the the body and, and what, what what we do but here's what i've noticed and i i mean because it's tempting i'm tempted to do it and i still and i'm telling you i wrestle that's the hardest part for me in the years post that season is really understanding how do i fit into the church what is my part in here and where you know it's like you always come to it still like i now trust god but i have a hard time with these people and so how do you overcome that and mm. I, I mean i think you know i think like what i hear people's you know the the way we almost do what you know, it's funny because we're going to talk about sexuality in a minute, but we, we like whatever parameter we're holding to that makes us feel happy. We want to shift the word of God to suit us. We're mm -hmm. seeing it play out easily in the sexual aspect. Like people have, you know, different beliefs and like, you know, their kids turn, you know, that come out as LGBTQ. And so all of a sudden, you, after a few years, you notice they no longer believe the Bible says this, we make it fit. So we, I think we do the same in the deconstruction world with church. We now say, Oh, but you know what? I'm 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 always with these Christians. That's our church. Yeah. To me, that's the same sort of reworking totally. yeah. God's totally. word. You know what I mean? Like it's like okay, I, I get that it's like right now, like the three of us are fellowshiping. Oh, that's church. Well, I'm sorry. No. You know, yeah. no disrespect to your Libby, but like that is Come not on. church. Thank you for it's, clarifying that. It's good fellowship, that, but it's okay. not church. So thank yeah. you for clarifying that because I I do want to get to um, some other stuff, but I do appreciate the clarification because when people hear the word deconstruction today, like you said, it means something different in 2023 than it did when you probably even wrote that book. Back then it was a healthy, 
it was seen as a healthy word. And now deconstruction, when I hear that in my mind, is more about uh, deconstructing orthodox theology to fit a lifestyle that I want to live. So whether it is in relationship with the church or my sexuality, when I hear the word deconstruction as a pastor or I'm deconstructing my faith, I see, like you said, it as a path to disbelief. I'm just, I'm on my way out the door and I want to give you all the reasons why I've been hurt by the church and why scripture um, doesn't say what it actually says. And so that was very helpful to clarify the difference between uh, deconstructing to be reconstructed in rooted in the truth versus deconstructing for the sake of giving myself justification for not leaning into things that are uncomfortable for me to accept that scripture upholds. So yeah, it's like you're either going to change your life to fit your theology or change your theology to fit your life. That's basically your two options. Yeah. And I'm I'm going back to... No, and I mean, and by the way, I just wrote the book two years ago. It's very fresh. And and so I don't think you're right. I don't think the the conversation that I have in the book is based on... I don't ever remember deconstruction being a good term, FYI. Mm. Even to now, like when I hear it, I I usually think what you just described, which is these people are out the door. And actually true, quote unquote, people who consider themselves pure deconstructionists, they would hate my book because they would say, well, you're not really deconstructed if you still believe the word of God is literal and inspired and and authoritative and all the things we do. So So there is a cynical enough. You're not quite cynical (laughs) And I am quite cynical. (laughs) But I think it's important. I think it's a a good word to say. It's important to, to, to frame context in conversations and especially now in 2023 because like our conversations are so just like they're online they, we throw bombs like like you know when you watch now how the guys are and how they throw bombs at each other that's what we do in social media and then we wonder why everyone's so mad at each other because we literally throw word bombs at each other and there's no context there's no understanding mm. i i mean i've seen people you know rip apart anyone who's says they've deconstructed if they still believe the God of the Bible. Mm. And that's not true. That's not true. You can absolutely deconstruct and you can absolutely fall back on the word of God being the true word of God and submitting your life to him. Uh, my my intrigue, and I've really, and I think this is, you could actually, I mean, not to get too theological, but you could really get into this whole Calvinism reform, you know, like what what makes one person still believe and the other not? Is it us? Is it like, think about it. Like, why? Why do two people walk down the same path of hurt and some walk out and go, were they never saved? Were they some saved? Were they not called? I mean, these are theological discussions. They're fascinating to me. And I can tell you, it's nothing that I've done. I I always say, like, the reason I came back to God is I woke up one day and realized he still had a hold of me. It wasn't like I found him the, the subtitle of my book is finding your way back to god in an age of deconstruction and i always joke like there was no finding my way back to god there was opening of my eyes and seeing god's hand was on me still mm. and mm-hmm. that is a immense awareness uh, that is humbling and that is filled with love of the father towards me and and i don't know the answer other than to say it is by grace that i am here today amen 100 percent. and more so when you read my newest book which is the book on sexuality it is god's grace all the way through, saving, sanctifying, perfecting. Something I wanted to go back to that you said earlier, you said God had to remove some of these mindsets that you had that were super legalistic, and so he stripped you of that. Give me one. one. Um, you know, yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think it sounds even stupid, but even like how you read your Bible, like reading your Bible in the morning versus in the evening, right. reading Bible through the through the year Bible plan versus like just... <laughs> Getting into a book of yeah. the Bible, you know, things like that. Like, there's a very big difference between obedience that's done out of love 
versus this idea that if I obey God, he'll do whatever it is that I want him to do. So basically, basically I had to, and I, 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 think, I think sometimes the clutches and the, the roots of legalism are so deep, you don't even think you are. Right. And I remember one time my friend Rosaria Butterfield, who's one of the wisest women I know, she was even one time we we're having a conversation that she says, I, I'm praying that God will rid you of your legalism. And my instinct was, what legalism? <laughs> and it's funny because, you know, she was like sort of, we we're talking about, you know, she's sort of a mentor in that time period of my life and, and just continues to be just a dear friend. And I, I thought she sees things that I don't see. And I, I think now I see better uh, and I still bend, you know, it's funny, like I still bend towards feeling God's love more when I'm doing, and, and I'm careful with saying that because I know that there's the pleasure, it's like a parent and there's kids, like yeah. there's an understanding that if a kid is obeying, you love them, they're happy, there's harmony, but you don't love them any less if they're not obedient. Right. But but it's those sort of nuanced ways mm -hmm. that I think I've continually wrestled with to really understand what it means to be loved by God has probably been and will probably continue to be the biggest work of my life. I just don't think we understand that, to the, I think we're scratching the surface, touching our toenail in what it means to be loved by God. And if we could just understand that, how much freer we would be. And I think that's the antithesis of legalism. Amen. That's a that's an amazing statement you just made to spend your life trying to understand what it means to be loved by God. That's huge. That's huge. So this brings me to Genesis because we're in Genesis 1 and 2 right now in our church and we're approaching Genesis with fear and trepidation because it really answers some of those foundational questions of who we are, who God is what it means to be loved by God, what it means to be made in God's mm. image. All these things are just literally foundational to our existence, really, as humankind. So I wanted to ask you, because I know you love God's Word. I know, like you've already said, you've spent a lifetime studying God's Word. You're an amazing Bible teacher. Uh, by the way, women of Crossroads love you because you've been done multiple retreats, multiple um, speaking engagements for us here. So you're not an unfamiliar face, and a lot of people really look up to you and respect you. So if you went to Genesis 1 and 2 in your life of studying, give me one thing that stands out to you about God about in these chapters, about his work, about what he does, who is God, and what's your takeaway? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I love the book of Genesis. I've taught through it, and it continues to be one of my favorite studies that I've done. And I feel like I always go back to Genesis in teaching because you, you see so many life application lessons. And Genesis three has factored hugely into the new book that I wrote. But Genesis one two, it's interesting. Um, I think probably the thing I am most struck that I have gone to again and again in seasons of discouragement is the idea that two things one that god can speak mm. like a word of him and just even the concept that god speaks you know that you see this right from the beginning you know god said god said god said god said mm -hmm. he's a god who speaks we spent so much of our life battling like why doesn't god speak to me how often have you said that how often have yeah. i said that why does he speak to them why doesn't he speak to me god speaks you know we open the up why doesn't he say anything he's always speaking he was from the beginning before that he speaks but even more powerful in my life probably and building on it in hebrews is the concept that god creates out of nothing mm. i think again you go back to like this you know talked about brokenness and healing and and i think you know the deadness of our lives the dead dreams the dead 
situations, you know, those, those like, you know, it's too late, God, what's the point of praying? You know, we prayed earlier, now Lazarus is dead, you know, and, and you kind of even look at like Hebrews 11. And when you speak about like, who God, when you look at like the, the faith that they had, like, this is a God who, um, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And to me, like, just this, like, we limit God by, we come to God, you speak about legalism, like a mutual form of it is we come to God with like a list of God, here's how you're going to solve my problem. And we have everything in these tidy boxes that need to be, be like, like God's solution we can't even think of. You know, we, right. we would limit him by saying, well, oh, you could provide for me by, like right now we're, you know, we're going through a challenging financial season, like the donors have been down and, you know, and, and, and substantially enough that we were like, you know, praying hard about God, like, how are you going to meet our need? And, and, and so in my mind, I think, well, God, you could sell books. Well, God, you could invite more speaking invites. Well, God, you, you know, I have like all these ways that I think, God, and right. then I'm reminded like God speaks, like we, I don't know why he thought of stars and water and yeah well you were saying that um in the book of hebrews where god god creates he speaks why doesn't he speak and it kind of led me to think of your uh i don't know if you finished your thought but it led me to think of the deconstructionism like when david in in the psalm says create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me it's like the post sin post chaos post darkening post deconstruction that's when God's really good at just speaking and recreating and creating things in our lives and our heart. And it's such a, he's such a good God because he speaks in the midst of those situations, in the midst of deconstructing, to reconstruct in a new way. Like you said, sans the legalism in a real true and genuine and new sense of living into understanding how God loves us and what that actually means. When I was going through deconstruction, one of the ways that I would summarize, and I, I know it's more, more nuanced than that, but I felt like at the heart of so much deconstruction is disappointment. But specifically, we stop doubt, we stop believing the goodness of God. Mm. And it's interesting because in Genesis one and two, I mean, you look at the story of God. You know, He creates man. Everything is perfect. It's a perfect place. Like we all think, if only my life was perfect, everything was perfect. I mean, so He puts Adam with Eve again. There's nothing to complain about, and everything falls apart in Genesis three when really Eve. That's the goodness of God. That's the bottom line. And so, you know, it's it is it's it's in in a sense you could look back at Genesis one two and then three and be like like we're the same. Like God gives us everything we need yeah. in Christ. Like it's a perfect world in a sense. I mean, we don't see it quite because we're in a broken world, so we don't understand that Christ is everything. But like we stop believing His goodness because because usually there's something that either we want that we don't have or some some. This is it. Yeah. Leaves us looking elsewhere and believing a voice that we would have never believed. Like, think of the people who have deconstructed. Like, I mean, picking on even public examples, like Josh Myers, ask him 10, 15, 20 years ago, would he ever have believed some things he believes now? And I would venture to say he probably would have think, no, I never would have thought that mm -hmm. I would end up like this. Well, how does a person end up right. like this? Well, something happens in your life. And for me, when I started believing like wacky things, it was like, or questioning things that I wouldn't, it's, it's, it's in the painful places. That's why I love pain. Cause it, you look at your painful spaces and you can decipher so much, which really in a sense makes Eve a little inexcusable because she didn't really have painful places. <laughs> like, like in a way you're like, look at her and go, well, what, what happened? Well, how could you, you know, like, like at least with us, we have brokenness all around. Like, you know, a lot of people deconstruct, there's legitimately painful places, but what did she have to doubt God for? And maybe, you know, those are the times when I think about Genesis one and two, 
I think a lot of us think of Jesus as being the solution to the Genesis 3 problem. And I don't think it's that. I think it's before that. Mm. I think it's bigger than that. I think in the sovereignty of God, the entire story from Genesis 1 on is a declaration of who God is through Christ. Amen. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Yeah, just read Ephesians. I think Ephes- I think Paul would agree with Sounds you. Sounds a little bit like that, right? Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. one of the painful places, probably the most painful place that I see people crying out in culture right now uh, that um, relates to Genesis 1 through 3 is this idea of sexuality. And I love the idea that you already picked out, which is that Genesis 1 through 3 tells us that God speaks. And the enemy is sowing seeds of confusion in a lot of areas that God does speak about. And one of those is sexuality. So from your experience as a medical doctor, but then obviously now you're teaching ministry, is that something that you see in your realm too uh, as, uh, as prevalent as what I'm perceiving it to be right now? That sexuality and the confusion 100%. around sexuality is one of the, uh, the, the biggest things. 100%. I, 100%. I think, I think we, you know, just what, what Eve did in Genesis 3 was, you know, cue God's word just a touch. Did yeah. God actually say, and, and the serpent says the sentence, and it's really God just says, he, he says, should you not touch it is what the serpent said. God said, don't eat it. And so already you skew it just a little and when you look at people the church let's pick on the church forget you know outside of the church i think it should be it should go without saying that they're not they're it shouldn't surprise us let's put it this way that if you're not using god's word as any sort of authority in your life like i i can look at the world and understand how they land on, on the ways that you know whatever conclusion you land on but but for the the tragedy in the last few years has been the christians the churches that used to believe what god says and now have uh, can you hear me, by the way, yep. right now? Yeah. Yep. Okay. It have skewed a little bit what it, what God has said. And so I even, even, I want to even push a little and say this link between deconstruction and sexual confusion in the church is fascinating to me. Almost every public figure who has deconstructed, like you kind of look at their story. And I mean, I wouldn't want to say everyone, but almost everyone, you come to, to find out later that there was some big question about what God this word says about sexual sin hmm. specifically i want to even push and say about same-sex attraction gender identity inevitably a lot of the shifts that have happened now where people go oh i deconstructed i no longer believe that you find out later oh their kids have come out as gay or their kids are trans and in this effort to sort of make god's word fit this model of you want to call it love whatever discomfort this hmm. measure of like like it's like we reinterpret god says in order to fit the situation that we're in and it's a tragedy because at the end you're hurting the person that you're caving you know you're 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 landing them out of eden like it's, it's the opposite Amen. of what it should happen but we are we try so hard to to hang on to the pieces of our life that we can't imagine a world where god can take what looks utterly broken a family that's broken um you know, a, a child that's gone away from the faith and that God can somehow out of nothing heal that person. And so, yeah, so to me, in that context, it's not surprising now that whether it's, you know, five years ago when when the, the Supreme Court, you know, I, I don't follow as closely, but I've read enough to know that a big change happened in the United States in 2015 and 2019. I think, again, Rosaria has written a lot about that, the Supreme Court decisions on same-sex marriage, on how we view our gender and identity, so, so that when we talk about the shift in the church, a lot of stuff have changed since 2015. Mm-hmm. So really, as a person who's grown up in the church, 
so a lot of the stuff that now is, is being talked about as a confusing theology, it's not. Like we grew up, there was no confusion as to what the Bible says about, about homosexuality, fornication, pornography, you know, adultery, remarriage, divorce, all. Like we grew up with a pretty robust understanding, just plain old English understanding of what the Bible says. Like nobody ever says, oh, I wonder if God really means this. Yeah. For centuries, <laughs> you know, everybody agreed. Like there was not even a voice in the church in the 70s, 80s, 90s in, of when I've been born where people are like, oh, this is a little confusing. It's a gray area. It's never been a gray area. And all of a sudden, 2015 happens and the culture says to us that, you know, you know, being, you know, all whatever sexual sin is not sin. It's, it's identity. It's what you're born in. And all of a sudden the church is scratching its head going, yeah, maybe they're right. And, and, and why did we do this? Well, probably for the same reason Eve did, because somehow you sort of looked at whatever you had in your life. And I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I can't speak to Eve because, again, I go back to she had everything going for her. But in our lives, I think we look at people we love who are in pain and we look at at, at our own lives that have been massively disappointed, maybe because of legalism, where we thought if we would do our part, God would save our children, would heal our children, would give us a husband who loves us and who would be faithful to us and who wouldn't struggle with pornography and on and on. Or, or our own lives, or like you know, I tell my story, where you're constantly falling into patterns of sexual sin that's like, really, how I'm, do I say that I'm a Christian and I keep sinning? And so you start to question, well, maybe God's word isn't true if I keep falling in this way. Maybe God's word isn't true if I've done my part and God does, hasn't done his. And so you start kind of going, well, you know, you start to question the essence of, again, what starts up in Genesis 1 as God spoke, the word of God, right? You go back to has God spoken or he hasn't. I mean, people have spent their careers debating whether it's a six-day creation or not. I'm a scientist, supposedly, because I'm a doctor. I've never questioned that. And, and again, I don't want to, I'm sure there's many people who are going to heaven who believe that it's not a six-day creation. But like, there's a point where you just say, by faith, mm. I believe what God has said to be true. And so then and here, I, yeah. can I, can I ask well, you a deeper question into that too? Yeah, especially you're the guys, so. <laughs> well, yeah. Amen. No, but I, I, <laughs> the thing that really is stumping me now is how the enemy has his hooks just through lies about things that aren't just clear in scripture, but that are clear by uh, the created order, biologically clear. Yep. And as a doctor to see so many people confused about things that are very clear biologically like how even seeking to change is a our guy body. a guy is a girl a girl right yeah, i mean and so, so, so my question to you is like <laughs> i understand the questioning god piece but for things that seem so self-evident and have been self-evident yeah. for millennia where do you think that shift happened well it's it, I mean, I, it, it, <laughs> you know, I don't know exactly where, but I think it became it's it became publicly <laughs> so it became dangerous in 2015. Yeah. Right. So I mean, you can trace it back, but something changed in 2015 where now the Supreme Court has laid out like you you can't even ask the question anymore. So not only so now let's talk about my profession. So I'm a pediatrician. That's my background, and I did pediatric emergency room. So I did double specialty. Pediatricians, our job was to show up to the delivery room and the baby would be born. And it wasn't even the OB that would say, the pediatrician would take the baby and do the exam. And if there was any kind of ambiguous genitalia, which was hardly ever, but we would assign, this is a guy, this is a girl, because we would see 
again, I don't want to like, like make this a R-rated, but a penis or a vagina. Like it wasn't, it's not complicated, right? <laughs> and the handful of times where it was complicated, you might run a blood test on genetics and look at their genetics. And, and now the push to not attribute to that is actually driven by the Academy of Pediatrics often. And parents are horrified now when they call their pediatrician's office and, you know, they want to make an appointment. And the first question out of the assistant's, you know, the receptionist's mouth is, well, do they, does your child identify as a boy or girl? And they're calling about their three-year-old boy, right? And it's shocking to them and, and, and not to everyone, but to people who've grown up with this basic understanding of what it means to be a male and female. And, and yeah, it's almost like it's shocking because it's like my stinking job. I went to school for four years of, of college and four years of medical school and three years of residency and years, three years of fellowship. And now in 2015, the Supreme Court makes a decision about how you are what you feel you are. And so we have people meowing and barking, saying they're dogs. They're not the dog. You can, like, what? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, like, it's so ridiculous, but it's, it's, but, but, it, but it's yours in the making. It's not like we look up one day. It's yours in the making. And, and, yeah. and, and to me, it's shocking don't know Christ fall into that. But it is shocking to me that the church has become confused. Yeah. It's shocking the amount of, the, yeah. the, the, the level of miscomprehension, how that has become a defining moment in American churches now. I didn't understand that. And you're of right. how we can have this debate on, it just shocks me because it's basic. But it's one thing after the next. It's us. And you can trace it back where we accepted sin. You know, you go back to like the 80s. I remember divorce being a big deal. And then it was like, well, you could divorce if this or that. And so people became more acceptable divorce. And then it was like, like now I had a person with this book I wrote who told, who was a small group leader, loves the Lord, went to seminary. I mean, just the whole thing. And, and this girl made a statement to my assistant and said, if Lena says premarital sex is wrong, I'm not getting the book. This is a spiritual, was leader until like a month ago. I don't know when. And you're kind of going, wait, what? Hmm. What? Like, what? Even that, like, where, what are we reading? So what happened to, to our basic understanding of sin? Like, what do you think drives that, Lena? What do you think drives that person to get to that point? Is it that they actually don't believe God or is that culture Want. has become more influent? Want. Okay. Want. Desire, longing. I, I've long I said this book, this book is not about sex that I've written. It, this book is about deep longing and not getting mm -hmm. the thing that you want. Yeah. So, so now you go back to Eve. I don't, she didn't have a reason for her longing, but she longed for the fruit. Single people long for connection, intimacy. Okay. Married people long for intimacy. Why do people cheat? Because why do people hold back? Because sex isn't about sex. It's about connection. It's about intimacy. It's about... It's about feeling complete. And we humanly have been sold this lie by Hollywood for ages with stupid romantic comedies to love stories that, that somehow there's a human out there that's going to complete us. And so if you marry and don't feel that completion, you assume I married the wrong person. And if you don't marry, you assume that it's just outside of your reach. And, and we've elevated this orgasm to this level that if you're not constantly having it, we miss A, that Love is about giving. Christ can't, I mean, Christ had to give up the heavens, everything, beauty, perfection in order to come to this earth, to Israel. Think about it, to Nazareth, to, to, to Bethlehem. Like, like, like this is love. Mm, he didn't yeah. gain anything from coming. What did he gain? Us? What did he gain? 
And yet that's how we treat this. So you go, what's behind it is why did, why have I fallen? I don't have to pick on others. I'll tell yeah. you what I have struggled with is what I thought my life would be and is not. And every time I'm disappointed by whatever lack of results I was hoping for, dreams I was hoping would become, everything, you know, things that sometimes are even good. And if they don't happen, I start to question God's goodness. God, like, don't, why aren't you there? Do I really hear you? Next thing you know, it's like, I'll just drink what Jeremiah says out of the broken cistern because for yeah. a minute it might feel good. But at the end, your soul is empty. You obviously love the word. Um, from a theological perspective, uh, I think it fits into three buckets. I think that it's it all comes down to three things, and that's the authority, sufficiency, and clarity of Scripture. So if you look at the buckets of arguments that um, people place um, their arguments in, it always will draw back to that. Okay, so, well, Scripture says this, but it's not that clear. There's your clarity. Yep, yep. Oh, Scripture says this, but we have all this new research. Scripture's not sufficient. Or, well, yeah, Scripture says this, but... It's not authoritative. There's no authority yep. to scripture. Yep. So that's helped me as I've tried to think about that, at least from a biblical perspective, those three buckets have helped me at least not get sideways when people come at me with all these different questions. It feels like there's a thousand different things that they might say, but generally those are the three things, those, those three buckets that those types of arguments fall into. Once people come at us with questions and with, I, I really think it's like in the ER or now with telehealth, like, I mean, there's, why are they asking the question? We're so naive to get caught up in an argument when always ask what's behind the question. We don't have, but honestly, it goes back that we don't have time for that anymore. We're mm. so rushed. We don't have margin. So there's no time to, to, to weed it out to say, mm -hmm. because there's always, always pain behind those questions. There's always something that has happened that there's a pain beneath the pain. And if mm. we could just get to that, it would make so much more sense why people are wrestling with it. And and then, you know, it, we just look at it and go, well, he's deviated from scripture, or he's this, or he's that. Well, what, what, why? Why have they changed their, their thoughts? What, what, what caused that? And I think that's the work that I've done to lead to the newest book is to try, and really the chapter, each chapter is sort of a, a, a poking into why. Why do we keep, as Christians, as followers of Christ, who want to be, full of the spirit who want to obey God. Why do we keep hearing these stories of pastors who fall? Why do we keep hearing of these debacles? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? Because it's not about like, I heard you know, what tipped the scales for me to write the book was a worship leader that I knew who had, who had had an affair and I didn't expect it. He was writing tender, wonderful worship songs. And, and, and then I thought about my life and I thought how that could be me. I just haven't been given an opportunity to to be in situations by God's grace that would lead me off the beaten path to that degree. But I, I started really thinking when, when my agent said, hey, you want to write a book about this? I thought, I, I don't want to, but I think I'm destined to because I, I understand that every time I've fallen into that pit, it's because I've refused to be satisfied with the goodness of God. Amen. And specifically talking about sexual sin, sexual sin has indirectly or directly affected every single human being that has ever faced yeah. the earth and so in some way or another yeah exactly that's it's very significant and yeah i didn't say that from a biblical perspective just in in regards to winning an argument but just saying that when people lose faith in the word of god everything else seems to fall <laughs> by the wayside as far as these types of things but Satan it starts wants, right? with I mean, longing right and, and this is where, why, like, it's like you look at Genesis 3, I mean, 
it's again, it's so simplistic. Like, why are we going, oh, I wonder why the church doesn't believe God's word says this anymore. But that's exactly how Satan got Eve. Yeah. It was about the word of God. It was totally. always the validity of the word, the authority of the word of God. And and yeah, I think always like, why didn't Eve go to ask God about it? You know, like simple yeah. things. Like you ever think about the story long enough and go like, like I'm sure you guys have, because I know Libby obsesses over Genesis and other, especially the Old Testament. But like, you know, this intrigues me always. Like, like that could have saved them so much pain. If instead of just going at them, you know, it's like, why didn't they just go ask God? There were only, there weren't that many people. I mean, it wasn't like they could, you know, run it by a million people. Like, why? What keeps us from just asking God? Yeah. And also, uh, and the, I, I don't know. The yeah. whole communal aspect of it, because the text actually said Adam, who was with her, he was right with yep. her when the snake is saying this. Why didn't he say, Eve, no, we should yes. really ask God about this? Like, we're in community. And that's honestly leads me to my next question. This is one of the problems in the church, right? We don't, we don't, live in community to the point where we're vulnerable enough where we can see people sinning and we can step in and say, are you sure about, are you sure you want to do that? Speak to that. Like when you write this book, what do you think that the church, what's the biggest problem in the church in this area? And then what can the church do better? Well, I talk about it and I think it was, it is a real problem. That is no question. It's this isolation and lack of um, safe places at the end of the day, mm. which it's the church is not tr historically even been in the recent past has not been a safe place. I'm just going to go upstairs because my long guy is making noise. So I apologize for that. Um, but I think that the, you know, and I think sometimes it, it's, it's a lack of truly a lack of, so people who deconstruct, there's no safe place. You're not in the church, whatever. But also like, I mean, I mean, the reality is some of it is actual, but other times you are like, I remember growing up in the church, being in a small group and, and I, and I think back, like, what made it such a hard area to be honest? And it, I think, the Ameri I mean, I will say uh, there there is a cultural uh, lack of understanding of how to do community. And it's it's because it's the opposite of the American way. The American way is less time together, more driven, more personal, you know, you, you are like, if you work hard, you're gonna achieve the American dream. So everything in our American culture, and I can speak to that because I'm Lebanese and I feel a tremendous 180 difference between how church is here versus how it is in Lebanon. And I and recently, I had a conversation with my pastor, the pastor that we partner with, the main one in Lebanon, his daughter is in the US now doing her residency. And, and she is going to be continuing her residency, but she it has been hard to adjust to life here. And every foreigner that you will talk with, especially from that type of culture that's very communal, will tell you it's so hard to integrate into American culture because we are a culture here in the U.S. that is driven by independent achievement. We like to call it rugged and individualism. I figured Crossroad had a had a word for it, no, but, a, but it's true. That's, a and the US has a, it, that's an American thing. No, yeah. but it's true. And it's like, and, and so you can't, that is, that is not what the Christian faith is. No. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this fear um, for me, like if you tell someone everything that they'll abandon you and the reality is, and they won't like you. And, and the reality is they might not because they're not trained to walk with you that, that difficult path. So it takes time. And in the US, again, you move. So you don't stay in the same place. So you don't have these communities. You know, even this concept of multiplication, like just when you get used to a small group, then they multiply. So it's nuanced. It's not an easy fix, but but it has to be fixed. But we I, have to create safe places in the church. I want to go back to what you said, though. I think ultimately, 
all human beings want love and belonging. So I think another thing that we could diagnose very easily on the surface is that where are people being most celebrated in a world that is so connected and yet as disconnected as it's ever been before, they are celebrated in the cultural arena for their sexuality. So if people are feeling uh, a lack of, of belonging, there's at least a pseudo community in air quotes that they can be a member of and be celebrated for. And so I think that because people don't feel like they belong or they are loved, that they well, go there. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I think, I think the LGBTQ community is distinctive in having an incredible um, community. I will say that, I mean, again, you could say that, I mean, again, I, I don't want to hurt, be hurtful, but it, in a sense, it's a false community in that it's a temporary community, maybe is a better word than a false community, because ultimately, if it's not based on the truth of who God is and what he wants, and we all think we're outside of, of God's plan, according to his word. And so, but they do do that well, I think they do do that well. And and I think we can learn from that. And And I think some of it is that they come to each other and with each other in their most broken places. And and most people who have had stories of coming out and falling out with their families and all of it, like it's a mess, you know, like they'll, I mean, my, my people who have gone through, you know, who live, you know, now LGBTQ lifestyles, I, I don't even think we call it that anymore, but whatever, like they, they've had hard roads and so they're used to that. And so there's, and I think in the church, we need to be better at embracing the mess. And I know it's, we're not to stay in the mess. Like I get that, but I don't know. We we shove all people with sexual sin in a celebrate recovery room down in the basement, and who would go to that? You know, I mean, other than twenty five year old men who don't want to be known as people who don't have any sexual impulse, because then it's worse, right? It's like better to go and confess every week. That, but it just doesn't make sense to me. What about the you know the twenty year old passion? You know, the woman who goes to passion conferences, who's in college testifying of Christ, who's struggling with porn, as an example. And we know that that a lot of women now struggle with porn. It's not a men thing. How did, where does she go? There's no when to celebrate recovery. It's like there's so much shame associated with that. Like, what are they supposed to do? And what about now with a porno, with a culture that's very pornified, let's say, which I think is a fact. Like, I think you are living in an age now that is just bombarding us with images and shows that are like respectable shows that just throw in sexual content at you at such a rapid pace. And so like what happens when the preteens who maybe accidentally immersed it because the age of kids seeing pornography for the first time is 11, like the majority of kids see porn at 11. And so what happens when they start having same sex feelings? Because it's known that women in particular who watch porn have naturally they're not gay but they have same-sex attraction it's been documented in science and so what happens when a 12 year old church kid has same-sex feelings because they've seen things that they never intended to but came across their path and now they're stuck in this addiction Mm. that in the moment might feel good but later leaves them hidden in shame and guilt what happens nobody's talking about that when we could clearly say we know we have a good god who created we know the answers and, and it's not a shame to admit that as, a, as much as it's a shame to stay in that when we've been given freedom. How do you see the gospel as a response to the cyclical nature of, the, uh, of shame being used as a step in a two-step cycle that seems to perpetuate when it comes to sexual sin? So sin, shame, shame drives yeah. more sin back to shame. Uh, how do you see the gospel well, as a response to that cycle? I think we... 
see the gospel. It's a tough one, but I will say this. I, my first side of the coin is that I think we see the gospel conditionally. Mm. I think we think if I'm good, then I deserve to be saved. I don't know that we actually say that, but, but, but we forget that when Christ died, he died for all of it. Can I interrupt you quickly just with a caveat yes. too, to agree with that yes. point? Because, um, you know, I, I became a Christian in college, transferred to Wheaton, uh, which is a very Christian school, was on a football team filled with a bunch of dudes lifting weights, full of testosterone, trying to suppress, obviously, a lot of these sexual desires that were God-given, but needed to be channeled in God-oriented directions. And then, um, oh shoot, I just lost my train of thought. We were talking about... Oh, the, the no. grace of salvation being redemptive. Yes. Uh, oh, being, oh, yeah, yeah. So that we're guys legalistic would, about it. Guys would struggle with pornography, and it would always be the conversation would always go, "How many days since the last time yeah. you watched pornography?" <laughs> As if God was counting the days, and He just He wanted you to go on a good streak. Let's. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the more weeks that you've gone, you know what I mean, and it became very performative. But then when you fall, it becomes, and when you fall, it becomes so weighty because now you think, "Well, I've screwed up. Now what do I do?" What do you? And you fall once or twice or five times or ten. Mm-hmm. When, when is it up? When is grace up? And so, but but the other, you know, and I think the other side of it is that we really, I really do believe in freedom. I really do believe in healing. Mm-hmm. But I've also realized that it's different for different people. And for me. First of all, I have never felt the love of God more deeply than when I am most broken. Hands down, when I am in the mess, that's when I realize how deep His grace is, how unconditional His love is, and how glorious His salvation is. And the other thing I've resigned myself to is that I will need grace daily to live the Christian life. There is no fix for me. It is a people say, "Have you now gone how many? Like how many days?" They don't ask question. How many days have you gone? It's just the idea is. The problem may never go away. We just somehow we think never having temptation validates the, the victory, but it's not. The victory is in my moment of need and pain. And I, I crucify myself daily, not because I am able to, because it's hard. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it, right? If crucifying yourself was easy, nobody would be struggling with sin. That's a good but word. But it's hard, but it's a daily practice of, of grace. <laughs> and and I don't know what that means for me for the future other than I'm held not by my works but by him the gospel is that it's his sacrifice it's his goodness it's all things good and then out of that there's now I, w- I don't want to fall and so there's a longing for holiness that I think validates the gospel in that it's not holy like I think and I write about this in the book and I, I think I've even chased holiness as an end result thinking somehow that if I can just be holy enough then God will again this legalism comes in whatever you want him to do my prayers will be answered my life will be better but but holiness is a, is a side effect it's not the end goal mm. Jesus is the end goal Amen mm. So I saw in your social media post and this kind of goes to this you had those four responses to sexual sin, and I thought that was so powerful. Talked about that a little bit. I don't have it in me, but I was thinking, um, can you, can you, you have it in front of you, right in front of me, because I, I can, don't. I can pull it up. No, I it's don't. okay. I can pull it up on the other phone. Hold on, because I think it's important. I was looking at that. You asked me that the other day, and I was looking at it, and like the the four outcomes. Let me just pull it up real quick on the other phone. We can tell a little. I know that the, the all of them were all of them were devoid, except the end one was um, repentance. Well, one, one of them is I was looking at the four things, and I I think I think my brain is so like I'm 
in that I'm very ER minded. I, I look at things from a very, um, like this could happen, this could happen. You know, I like thinking in, in categories. <laughs> okay, here there are four outcomes for a person who's living a secret life. Number one, you get away with it for a little while. And, and I think that's where a lot of Christians are living. They're just hoping they keep getting away with it, right? It's just like, no, no bad outcomes. No one knows, you know, tomorrow I'll fix it. Tomorrow I'll be better. Second one, you get caught. And that to us is the worst scenario, but it's the best. That is grace. Amen. Honestly, especially if you're stuck in a cycle of sin. Now, the, the hope is that you confess before you get caught, right? I mean, this, I, in a sense, write the book, right? Because eventually, if you're a child of Christ and you, you do long to be like him, it, and you're not changing, then something has to give. And so all these stories of pastors who, who, who implode, like, I don't necessarily think it's the, many of them later you hear their stories and you're like, wow, like even I've watched the Carl Lenz special that came out recently. And I genuinely see a person who's repentant. I don't know the end of the story, but it looked like real repentance. Mm -hmm. And I think, wow. And, and so, so I think you get caught as a, as a real factor. Sometimes that moves you to to back to holiness. Other times it moves you away from faith, but maybe you never wanted that. So that's fine. Number three outcome, you admit what you're doing, but keep doing it because you're convinced yourself that it's not wrong. This is what I now see happening in the world and in churches that no longer hold what you're saying, the authority of scripture. Right. You admit what you're doing is, is you, you say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm same-sex attracted and you know what? The word of God doesn't really say that it's not right. In fact, you guys were wrong. When it talks about homosexuality, it talks about, you know, this or that, and we qualify everything. And, and because we convince ourselves that it's not really wrong, sleeping with one another, whatever it is like you know, and, and that's to me the worst outcome where you start to convince yourself that because culture says it's right, because you don't like what God says that it's wrong. And fourth, you can, this is the best outcome. You confess what you're doing and change. This is called repentance. Amen. It's not easy. You learn that if, you, if, it, if it was easy, because the confession part is easy. The change takes time. I have a whole chapter, which all the chapters in the book are super short, purposefully, because I don't think we can read like we could before. And because the point can be made in short chapters, change. We all think the formula of change should look at one way. Like we all think if I repent, I should have no more you know, bad desires. But that's not true. Look at life in general, you know, look at, look at, like, I give an example in the book, like, even like in football, you know, like you mentioned football a second ago, my nephews play football, they're part of a team. And some days one kid gets a concussion, he's out for a couple of weeks, the other kid, you know, his weight is up or down, whatever it is, like, like they're still part of the team. Sometimes they play, sometimes they don't, there's fluidity. We're very black and white. We're binary in the church. We just think if you're really repentant, everything should change now. Well, the desire to change will be there, but it might be longer. Why do some people get saved and no longer have a single cigarette the rest of their life? And others are like, I crave it or, or alcohol, whatever it is. Like we see this. I don't know. Other than I believe God uses those spaces of need to help us to understand grace. You go back to grace. We're saved by grace. It's grace. It's sustaining grace. It, it change is grace. And if we are looking for an outcome of I'm now no longer sitting, then you're going to, until you go to heaven, that is not going to happen. The outcome is confession and a daily relying on grace. Yeah, amen. that's, a, yeah, amen. And it I'm going to say one more thing that we yeah. say at Crossroads that Good. you're going to love, Lena. We say, okay, come on. With, with God, all you need is need. And that's all you that's can bring. It. That's all you can that's bring it. is need. That is the only thing you have to bring to the table is your I've need. I've said need is my Achilles heel, and yet it has been the greatest gift 
to drive me into the presence of God and my deep understanding of my need for him. I mean, it really, I, I would not change my story as much as I've loathed parts of it. Like, you know, we're all so like, we all want to be perfect. Like, right. It's like we're Americans. Like we just want everything to be like, you know, I want to write a book about my failures. I want to write about all the successes, but um, I don't think I would know the grace and the love of God in a way that I know now. I had a different life. Lena, thank you so much. And so your book is called Don't Tell Anyone You're Reading This, right? By Lena, Dr. Lena yep. Abu Jamra, who's been with us today. It's been so amazing. Yeah. We're so grateful. Um, and uh, yeah, give us a last word about how you've seen God move into your personal shame and uh, sin in this regard. And you don't have to go into details about your sin, but you, you mentioned how God has been on this journey with you. So just encourage us with a word on that. Shame is shattered by the truth and by coming, living in the truth, by coming out and telling the truth. Tell your story. Um, look, forgiveness, repentance, atonement, all these things are facts, but shame falls to the wayside when you start living in the truth. I remember when I first the book i was mortified what would my close friends think what would people think and the more people have read the story the less i feel ashamed my guilt has been paid for by the cross but it's as i've told my story now i don't even think of like people are like wow you're so honest and i think i don't i don't know that i'll do it any other way so i encourage people like if you read the book or don't it doesn't matter but if you're living where you fear there's an area in your life if anyone finds out what would happen that means there's something in your life you need to sit down with a loved one and or a therapist if you have a loved one or me email me and just tell your story there's healing there's a way to live in christ that does not have shame and it's why god went to the garden we'll finish with genesis right it's why god went to the garden to look for adam and eve he knew where they were but that's why he went and and, and didn't stop when he when they hid he didn't stop looking for them he knew where they were and he asked the question, where are you? And the outcome wasn't to smack them on the head and tell them how bad they were, but to bring them back into a relationship. Amen. Well, Lena, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, really looking forward to digging into more of what you've offered the kingdom of God just through your story and your work. And uh, I'm also grateful that you hung on as we were dealing with some tech technical difficulties. Yeah. Um, it but, worth uh, it. We are just so grateful for you and your testimony and so grateful for how clearly you communicated the gospel there at the end. Um, that's where we find healing. This is the locker room where we break down sermon stories and scripture for the race of our faith. And uh, if this has been serving you, please hit follow and ring the notification bell. Love you, Lena. You're great. Love you guys. Hope to see you soon. Locker room.